Have you dreamed of bigger things for your life? Then you are in the right place. Each week, you will be given tips on how to change your inner dialogue, conquer your goals, and ways to step into a higher version of yourself. I'm your host, Lauren Kubat. I'm a motivational speaker who hosts personal development events. I'm a sought-after fitness instructor, a wife, and a mom of two young boys. I'm obsessed with all things personal development, and I believe anyone can achieve the life they want. Let the Become Your Vision hey, podcast be the inspiration individual. you need to step into you greater would things. would not be now tuning in today if you aren't mentally strong and if you didn't want to become more mentally strong. So I appreciate you and you should give yourself a little pat on the back for tuning in. This episode is really, really good. Uh, our conversation just flowed. Love talking to Amy Morin. Let me give you a little backstory on her. She's a psychotherapist, mental strength trainer, and international best-selling author. She's a highly sought-after keynote speaker who gave one of the most popular TEDx talks of all time. If you've not listened to her TEDx, just Google Amy Morin TEDx talk. It is so so good. I've watched it several times now. Her books, uh, one of them is 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And then another one, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. That's one I need to read. Have been translated into more than 30 languages. She's a columnist for Inc., Forbes, Psychology Today, and her articles on mental strength reach more than 2 million, excuse me, my voice cut off, readers each month. She's awesome. She lives on a sailboat. We talk about that. She's just doing uh, amazing things. We talk about a little bit about her fitness routine, what she does to stay mentally strong. So, so good. She was also vulnerable in how she felt about giving this TEDx talk with over 21 million views. Crazy. She was saying that she was like anxious the whole time and having anxiety and it's not something you would pick up on at all. So I found that really interesting. Anyway, if you love this episode, please, I am begging. I ain't too proud to beg. Please leave a review. We're up to 120. I would love it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. Second best is an Apple or a Spotify uh, review, but Apple first. Please, if you can, I appreciate you. This this show is free to you, uh, but it does cost me. <laughs> it does cost me to produce, and I put a lot of time and effort into the show to make it so good for you. So it's a little, um, you know, appreciation from you to me, and it really does count. Okay, enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today, as you heard in that intro, we have Amy on the show. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And you're in your sailboat. She lives on a sailboat, right? I do. So I was a therapist in Maine and working typical therapist hours. And after I wrote the first book, I took a break from being a, I guess, nine to five therapist and said, why don't I try to write a second book just to see what would happen? And then sort of occurred to us, well, if I'm going to be an author, I don't have to live in Maine where it's cold and dark. And uh, let's try something else. My husband had always wanted to live on a sailboat. Like since he was four years old, his bedroom was decorated as a little kid and sailboat themed. And he was always like, yeah, someday. And I was like, okay. So we 
moved down to the Florida Keys thinking it would be a six month adventure, but I think we're going on seven years now. <laughs> wow. And yeah. you've lived on a sailboat this entire time? Yeah, I still have my house in Maine. So pre-COVID, okay. I would still go to Maine um, for like a couple months in the summer. But uh, now after COVID, where everybody works online, the internet is just way too slow. Like you open a web page and it takes 10 minutes to download the web page. So it's really not an option to stay there for any length of time these days. <laughs> in Maine, the internet's bad? Yeah. Yeah. To which people will be like, well, is it just your house? I'm like, no, it's not like my house. It's like the entire area of rural That's Maine. Interesting. There's, we don't have high speed internet yet. Because I was th- like, I would think being on a sailboat, the internet would be worse. <laughs> right. That's what everybody says. Because I'll be like, oh, I'll have to do that interview when I'm back on the sailboat because the internet's too slow up here. And I'm like, wait, what? But yeah, the internet's great down here. <laughs> um, now, does your husband also work on the sailboat? Yeah. So uh, he manages my business and manages property. So his okay. business is a little more flexible than mine. So because we buy over like office space of okay, who's going to do the Zoom interview at what time, where that's okay. Of I would imagine you get like cooped up, but it doesn't seem like. So just... we, we uh, own dock space and like we own a tiki hut outside. So like we have outdoor space too. And most of we're not like bobbing around in the ocean. Most of the time we're usually like in a marina. Tied okay. To so the car's right there and you know, I have outdoor living space too. Oh, that's awesome. Now, I, I mean, I didn't intend to start the podcast like this, but I just find this so intriguing. <laughs> what do you do when a hurricane is coming? So normally like a tropical storm will stay. Okay. Um, and we're sort of in a uh, canal, like hurricane hole. So it doesn't get that bad typically. Oh. But if it's a, it's a real hurricane, we're the first ones out of here. Like I'm not interested in being on a boat. You just tie the boat down and hope for the best. So we had a boat down here during hurricane Irma. Okay. 17 and it got some damage and that was a category four storm. The boat got some damage, but it was just cosmetic. So uh, the boat will take a lot more than we would. Okay, right. Right. <laughs> this recent, we just had um, hurricane Ian and we just got like tropical storm winds. I was here by myself. Actually, my husband was oh. out of town, but um, and it was a little, a little windy, but we luckily missed the bulk of the storm here. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cause we're in Charleston. So we get those, those hurricanes as well, but, um, yeah, so interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's, let's get right into it. So you wrote the book, 13 things, one of the books you've written 13 things mentally strong people don't do. And I read it a while ago and then I kind of skimmed it again recently and it's, it's everywhere. Um, and I'm sure if you're listening, you have seen it. If you haven't read it, you have seen it in all the bookstores. It's very, very popular. Can you share how you started this list? Yeah. So again, it was back when I was a therapist in rural Maine and I had gone through this series of losses in my life. My mom passed away when I was 23, which was just about shortly after I started my career as a therapist. And then three years later, my uh, 26-year-old husband passed away and he had a heart attack. Obviously, mm. at 26, you're not supposed to have a heart attack. And people always want to know, like, was it drug-related? Like, well, no, it wasn't. It was just uh, probably a uh, genetic issue that he was probably mm. born with, and we just nobody would have known. And the doctors have assured us, even if it had been caught early, there was nothing that they could have done. But 
to be widowed at 26. I didn't have my mom. And I was in this really strange place of, well, who am I? What do I do with my life? And we were foster parents. And I thought, do I still want to be a single foster mom? This isn't really what I had imagined my life would be like. And how do I go to work as a therapist to help other people with their problems when here I am completely heartbroken? And as a therapist, I was taught really when people come into your office, find out what they're doing well and build on that. So if they say they already have these certain good habits, you tell them, that's great. Keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Like at some point in my career, I was like, you know, if I were going to go to see a, a physical trainer and they told me to run on the treadmill, I'd do it. But then if they like didn't tell me, hey, by the way, quit eating all that junk food, I'd be really upset because I'd rather give up, you know, the extra hour on the treadmill and say, I'm just not going to eat this jelly donut. It'd be way easier than, <laughs> than running faster, running harder and always trying to outtrain my bad habits. And so I just thought I'm doing people a disservice if I don't point out some of their unhealthy habits that are keeping them stuck. And so I just really studied people. I, as a therapist, I have a revolving door of case studies all day long and like, wow, what makes some of these people so resilient and how, how are these people getting through stuff? And it was often more about what they didn't do. People who didn't have certain bad habits seem to still be happy and hopeful and they got through life in a, in a less scarred way than other people. And so I paid attention to that in my own life and tried to teach that to other people too. And I really wanted to say that, you know, you have a hundred good habits, one bad habit that was keeping you stuck and that thing that's counterproductive, let's focus on that and get rid of that in your life. So I started doing that, but then I also started applying it to my own life. And then, uh, you know, a few years down the road after, after I was widowed, I'd sort of built this new life for myself. I decided to become a foster mom as a single person and uh, life was looking pretty good. Fortunate enough to find love again, and which dating as a 26-year-old widow, like it was just not really anything I was interested in for years. But do you do uh, apps? Uh, you know, back then I did not, I didn't, okay. I had no interest and people would try to set me up and I'm like, absolutely not. Like talk about awkward to be like, Hey, by the way, <laughs> uh, so I, I didn't, but, uh, I had no plans of getting remarried, but I did when I was somewhere around 30 ish and life was like, okay, I, I got a new house, a new job. And I thought, how fortunate am I to have this fresh start in life? But it was right about then that my father-in-law was diagnosed with cancer and it was prostate cancer. So they said it's beatable. You know, he'll die of something else first. He's 70 years old. But uh, within a few weeks, they said, actually, it's spreading and we don't really have anything we can do about this and um, gave him a pretty poor prognosis. It was like a couple of weeks to a couple of months. And I just thought, like, I can't do this again. I just can't keep grieving. Like, I just spent the last decade of my life grieving. Here we go again. And why does it have to be when life starts to look good that the other shoe drops? But, okay, I mean, you're a therapist. Like, (laughs) thinking this way is not helpful. So I sat down and I wrote the list of what mentally strong people don't do. And there was 13 things on the list when I was done. And I would just read that list. Like, okay, I don't have to do 112 good things today, but as long as I don't do these certain things, and it was the things I had learned as a therapist that if people didn't have these habits, they tended to thrive in life. So I had my list, I would read over it and it would help. So I thought, well, if it helps me, maybe it'll help somebody else. So a few days later, I published it online and I thought like a few people might read it, but a 50 million people read that list. And here I am, it's been... um, I guess almost 10 years since I wrote the list. And now I'm book number five is coming out next year. And I still get to talk about what it means to be mentally strong. Cause I think a lot of people just didn't know what mental strength was. I still hear so many misconceptions about it and people are confused about it and people want to know, well, 
how do I just work smarter and not just harder? How do I give up a bad habit or two in order to make the good habits I already have a lot more effective? Mm -hmm. What are some of the misconceptions that you're still seeing? So people will say things like, um, you know, I, I didn't, I guess after my husband died, if I didn't cry for the day, somebody would be like, that means you're getting stronger. No, it doesn't. Like the amount of tears you shed really has nothing <laughs> to do with mental strength. Right. Sometimes we look, we think that we can judge somebody's mental strength just by looking at them. Like if there's two people and one person says, yeah, I'm terrified of roller coasters, but I'm going to go compared to the person that says, no, actually, I'm going to sit this one out. Well, who's mentally stronger? I don't know. It depends on what somebody's goals are. If somebody says, I want to face my fears and they're doing that, yay for them. But if somebody else said, you know, actually my goal is to be more assertive and speak up for myself. And by saying no to my friends, that's mental strength. Ooh. But so often people ask me those questions like, well, what do you think about this person's mental strength? I have no idea what battles this person is fighting on the inside. Or somebody who speaks in front of five people, but it took all the courage in the world compared to somebody who gets on a stage in front of 10,000. Like who's mentally stronger? Well, the person Ooh. that got up on stage in front of 10,000 might not have had any anxiety at all. So I think there's a lot of things about acting tough where people think if you just push through feeling horrible and you go to work when you're sick or you do all of these things, even even though you don't feel like it, that somehow that means you're the epitome of strength. But again, even you go to the gym and you look around at people, some people aren't there because they're about self-care and self-love. They're punishing themselves because they ate too much last night. And so can't really tell by looking at somebody's behavior, whether it's true mental strength or not. Oh, that is so interesting. So interesting. And it's definitely gives, you know, perspective, right? It's like, you have to, I guess, talk to that person and know a little bit more detail than just making assumptions about um, their, their mental toughness. Hey guys, I wanted to take a second to tell you about a high fiber cereal that I eat almost every day and it's called Moosley. So Moosley is an all natural cereal, meaning it doesn't have preservatives, artificial flavoring, or natural flavoring. It's also gluten-free, plant-based, and it's so good, you guys. Now, not only does my husband and I enjoy it, but I've even packed it in my kids' lunch with a single serving of muesli, an ice pack, and vanilla almond milk in a little container. And that's the majority of their lunch. Now, there are so many ways to enjoy it. You can eat it as, as cereal, cold or warm, as overnight oats, in a smoothie, in yogurt, and you can even bake with it. Fiber is something that is so underrated. And in fact, only 5% of Americans get the proper amount. Now, fiber helps with so much. It helps in digestion by improving your gut health. It helps you stay satiated and energized. It aids in weight loss and helps fight chronic disease. So to get your Moosley cereal, head to mymoosleycereal.com and use code VISION15 for 15% off your order. That's mymoosleycereal.com and use code VISION15 for 15% off your order. And I'll leave all that information in the show notes. Okay, back to the show. You said, okay, I found this interesting because you had a tremendous amount of loss at such an early age. You lost your mom, you become um, widowed. As a foster parent, did you ever fear loss? Because I've heard that being a foster parent is very, very hard you, and you don't know when that child might be taken from you. You have this connection with them. Did you ever fear that or ever go through loss when you were a foster parent? Yeah, it's a tough one because... 
you get these kids and often they would be like last minute, I'd get a call at two in the afternoon that says, can you take this kid at five o'clock today? You know nothing about them. They show up at your house with a trash bag full of their possessions. You have no idea if they're going to be there for a week, a month, a year, or how long it's going to take. And in my case, I was a therapeutic foster parent. And so almost, actually, I think every single kid I took, it was like the last stop before Mm. the state was trying to decide if these kids were adoptable or not. They had, a lot of them had behavior problems, um, emotional issues. So it was sort of like they've been kicked out of lots of other places and the state knew I was a therapist. So they'd be like, Hey, can you take this kid? And it was like, uh, some of them had a relative maybe that was interested in adopting them, but the relative was not in any shape to be able to take a kid with serious issues. Or it was a kid who they wanted to put up for adoption, but they didn't want to set somebody up for failure with this kid. So basically my job was to say, are they adoptable or not kids who aren't adoptable? And I didn't realize a lot of people don't realize there's tons of kids out there that are considered not adoptable. I and did not know that they get put in a group home until they turn 18 and sort of like the modern day orphanage. Mm. Um, but we don't know what else to do with them because for whatever reason, they, they can't live with a family. Sometimes, sometimes there's other reasons for that. Sometimes we want kids to keep a connection with their biological parents, but their biological parents can't take care of them. And so a group home is a place where they can still visit, but they can't, they're, biological parents may not be the people who uh, take care of them on an everyday basis. So, and I did a lot of respite care, especially given my circumstances, because I was um, a single mom who still had a full-time job for a while. So I did a lot of like weekends. So for other therapeutic foster parents, if they were going out of town and they couldn't take their foster kids, because there's lots of rules too about crossing state lines and things Mm -hmm. like that. So they may need somebody to take them, but you can't just hire any babysitter or you can't really have a a relative. It has to be another licensed foster home. So I did a lot of that. Somebody went on vacation for a week or two. I'm like, oh, absolutely. And that ended up with a lot of teenage girls as well, because a lot of them get a bad rap and foster parents are scared of teenage girls but uh, say that i found them to be some of the easiest they really didn't have they were self-sufficient they, <laughs> you know right. um, a lot of them were like really willing to help out around the house they had lots of questions about you know life and they were curious so i didn't mind that at all but back to your question yeah there's always that of like where do they go next and i mm-hmm. would always remind myself if i'm concerned about that imagine being a kid And you don't know where you're going to school next year, when you're going to see your mom or your dad again, if you're going to see them again, or who's the next stranger you're going to move in with. And like, as a kid, I would not have, I can't imagine I would have survived that if somebody would have suddenly taken me away from my mom and my dad and put me in with a stranger and gave me a trash bag full of my old clothes and said, good luck to you. And you don't know if you're going to see them again or when you're going to see them or uh, kids that uh, didn't get contact with their siblings very often. Mm. Yeah, oh, it's tough for sure. I re- I assume being a foster parent would also take a tremendous amount of mental strength. <laughs> yeah. And knowing, I guess, like, how do I give this kid the best shot possible to hopefully uh, I wanted all of them to be able to be adoptable, which I'm proud to say all of them were once they Ooh, left. Okay. Um, all of them were um, able to go live with a family member or be put on the adoption list. Mm. And um, a lot of them, I don't know what happened to them. They don't, a lot of times you can't really keep in contact with them because it's okay. not, it's not always good for them because they're, they've been 
switched homes so many times and sometimes they'll say we want them to bond with their next family without then calling you to say hey by the way guess what they don't let me stay up as late as you used to or that sort of a thing so some of the kids they've just been in so many homes that they kind of lose track of who these adults are anyway and and even though it means a lot to me that they stayed with me for them it was just another another home that they stayed in and many of the homes that they that they were in over the years yeah um I, I I had this thought. Oh, do you still foster? I don't. So okay. because I live on a sailboat, I don't. Right. <laughs> I would imagine that. I mean, would there's be all hard. these rules about you can't even take a kid like on a if you have like a little a little boat for the day. It takes like an act of Congress to get signed off on being allowed to take them out on the water on a boat. So I do not do it anymore. <laughs> Too many restrictions. Right. So uh, were you? shocked when you're like, okay, you posted this, these 13 things, this list, uh, do you, can you go through that list real quick? Otherwise I I have it here. I can read it as well. Sure. Um, you want me to just read through the list? Sure. I'll grab the copy of my book so I can look at the back. Cause after you've written, I'm on, I, I, on well, book the, number six. So to remember <laughs> in each book in order. <laughs> yes. Well, that's what I was thinking too. Cause I'm like, I'll write this down because you know, that would be something easy to forget. I would imagine and, because you write all the time. And then I have a TEDx talk where they're in a different order. So then that's what's committed to memory, but I'll give you the order in the book. So yes. number one, they don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. Number two, they don't give away their power. Number three, they don't shy away from change. Number four, they don't focus on things they can't control. Number five, they don't worry about pleasing everyone. Number six, they don't fear taking calculated risks. Number seven, they don't dwell on the past. Number eight, they don't make the same mistakes over and over. Number nine, they don't resent other people's success. Number 10, they don't give up after the first failure. Number 11, they don't fear alone time. Number 12, they don't feel the world owes them anything. And number 13, they don't expect immediate results. Ooh, these are so good. How long did it take you to really sit with those thoughts to come up with that list? You know, so it was like it had been in my mind for years. I just never. So by the time I sat down and I wrote it, we're talking like a solid 10 minutes. It was just a matter of, okay, Amy, here's these things that, you know, and you've been working on. I just never had put it on a piece of paper on my laptop all at once. Ah, and you didn't think this could turn into a book that wasn't in your mind Never at all? In my wildest dreams would I have imagined that. And after the article started making its rounds, uh, I, I didn't think it would be anything all that big either. In fact, I was really concerned about my career as a therapist. So as it made its rounds, so it started on like a couple of news channels called and then like CNN in Mexico called and then MTV in Finland. And I just thought, oh, dear, what have I done? And then um, uh, you would get in trouble. Well, you know, so again, it wasn't like like I had written this, but it wasn't like a peer reviewed study or anything. Mm. But then a a writer for Psychology Today wrote an article about how they didn't like my article. Oh, I remember thinking, oh, dear, what have I just done? And and then news channels were calling to try and interview me. And I'm a therapist in a really small town. And I'm thinking, like, do I go on national TV and talk about this? And um, and I did. I went to New York for the day, did some interviews. I'd never been on TV before, but I'm doing these national TV interviews. And they're like, how'd you come up with this list? And I was like, well, I'm a therapist. I just know this stuff. 
Yeah. They didn't know my father-in-law had passed away just a couple days before. Mm. And I didn't tell my own story, but a literary agent had called me and said, you should write a book. And I didn't know what a literary agent was. And I thought, that's nice. But at that point, I had so many calls from people who were like, oh, build a course, do this, do that. I really didn't even trust this literary agent because I didn't know that you needed one to write a book. I knew nothing about writing books. And she called me back again, heard I was going to be in New York and said, let's meet up. And I went to her office and I saw all these books and I was like, oh, this is real. Right. <laughs> and I really think you should write a book and, and turn your 13 things into a book. And I said, well, I have a secret and I haven't made it public yet, but I didn't write this list because I am a therapist and I wanted to educate the world. I wrote this list as a letter to myself. And then I told mm. her the backstory, but I said, I'm a therapist. I don't tell my problems to the world. I listen to people's problems. I don't know if I want to come out and say, hey, by the way, I'm actually struggling with all these things because what will that do to my therapy career? Will people right. still trust me if I'm like, actually, I do feel sorry for myself and I'm struggling too. Well, that ruined my credibility. So it took a while before I came to that conclusion of, okay, I guess I'll write a book. But again, never imagined that the book would have sold as many copies as it did. How many has it sold? You know, if you combine all of my books so far, it's over a million and it's in over wow. more than 40 languages. Like there's some languages I'd never even heard of that it's been translated into. Does that still surprise you? It does. That, that, that's <laughs> amazing. I'll go to a bookstore and there's my book or my books have been in Target. And I'm like standing in Target and I'm like, what do you do when your book's standing there? Somebody's looking at the book. Like, do I say, hey, by the yeah. way, author, I wrote that or, you know, it's just do you buy your own book. I do. So <laughs> um, sometimes I'll go to like an event and I'll forget my book. So I like run to oh. the store and I'll buy a copy of it. And, and it, you know, and then I'm like, do you tell the clerk, hey, by the way, I wrote that or something yeah. the nobles and I'll just say, can I sign copies of my book while I'm here? And then they'll let me sign them all, which is always cool, too. That is awesome. Why do you think this list resonated with so many people? I think a few things. I think um because it was in the don't, we hadn't seen a lot of, now there's lots of other articles out there about what successful people don't do or what smart people don't do. But mm. really the first one that was like, hey, just don't do these certain things. There were so many articles out there about the things you should be doing. So I think that helped capture people's attention. But I also think it was the first time people had really heard about mental strength and about like, wow, we can build mental strength. That's something we should all be working on as well. And you know, pre-COVID and 10 years ago, I think the world has changed a lot since then. Back then, people didn't really talk that much about mental health. Totally. They were much more willing to talk about mental strength. And so then I had to come out and be like, well, they're two different things. You could still have depression and be mentally strong. Mm. And that led to a lot of people like, wait, what? Because I didn't want to contribute to the idea that we should minimize our mental health issues or deny them or pretend they don't exist. Like, nope, just like you could be physically strong and still have a physical health issue. Like you might have big muscles, but you could still get, say, high cholesterol. Same thing. That is you interesting. Build, you can build mental strength and you still might struggle with a mental health issue. And some of the strongest people I've ever met were in my therapy office. Like, hey, I'm battling this thing, yet I still want to do all of these other amazing things too. How do I do that? Yeah. Out of the 13 and I'll share mine too. Which one do you have to work on the most? You personally, probably uh, not giving away my power. I still, this day will be like, Oh, you know, so-and-so waste my time or this person, um, you know, took advantage of me. Like, no, Amy, you allowed that to happen. Or no, that person didn't waste your time. I'm in charge of my time all day long. If I allowed somebody to 
sit through a meeting that wasn't helpful or I allowed somebody to talk me into something and I didn't want to do it. Like that's my fault. That's on me. So that one. And even like, if I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm kind of having a frenzied day, I'm like, Oh, I have to go to the grocery store. No, no, have to go. I might not have all the ingredients I want or the dinner I want to eat that night, but it's a choice. Just reframing that for me helps so much to remind myself like, no, it's (laughs) you're in charge of how you spend your time, who you spend it with and what you do all day. And if you have a problem with it, it's not anybody else's fault. Nobody's stealing your time. Nobody's wasting anything. It's just because I allowed it to happen. So giving your power away is like giving blame. Yeah. Yeah. When we really just, you know, again, like so-and-so ruined my day. They made me mad. They yeah. um, embarrassed me, whatever it is, or they make me feel bad. Nope. <laughs> you can be in charge of all of those things. I think I struggle with that one too, but also like, this is another one is um, expecting immediate results. You know, like I want things to happen, happen way faster than, you know, is possible. I think that one is, is a tough one um, for me. And that's another one that the world has changed in the last yeah. so much. 10 years ago, you couldn't order something on Amazon and get it on your door in sometimes an hour. The things like that, well, of course we want things to happen so fast, but like if you're going to change your life, your life isn't going to change nearly as fast as technology is going to be able to give you something. Yeah, it is true because everything is like instant. When we want an answer to something, we Google it. When we want to make a connection with somebody, we shoot them an email and usually, you know, get a response pretty immediately um, or a text message or, you know, whatever it is, groceries, like way faster than what it used to be. So I think we have those expectations of our goals should come to us much quicker as well when that's not always possible. Definitely. So you gave this the TEDx. I want to talk about that because uh, I just find I love TEDx speeches. It's actually it's been on my vision board for the last several years. Like I would love to be a TEDx speaker. And so I watched yours again. And what and you have um, I wrote it down here over um, what was it? I don't know if you know this off the top of 21 million views. And this was six years ago. Was this another thing where you were shocked by the feedback that you got? I was. So I, I was in Minnesota um, at the time and I got this call from somebody in Florida who said, I want you to come give a, a TEDx talk. And um, I said, OK, but uh, then I let them know, like, hey, I was actually invited to do another one. Um, and so can I still do two? And they said, yeah, that's fine. And then um, so we had them both lined up and I thought, yeah, we'll see how this goes. Well, the first one, the microphone broke halfway through. There was like all of these issues. Oh, so I no. thought, all right, well, the second one's my chance to say, OK, how do I how do I crush it this time? And, um, you know, again, thought maybe a few a few people would would watch it. But I was really nervous in giving that speech because of the first one had some issues. So the second one, I was nervous and it was in a a really dark theater. And mm. so with bright lights on my face, so I couldn't see the audience. It was, <sighs> and, then, and then I had given just only a couple of speeches here and there, but I'd never had one where it was so dark that you couldn't see the audience. So you couldn't read anything, whether they were sleeping, paying attention, <laughs> yawning. <laughs> right. And so I just, I felt like a deer in headlights up there. My voice cracked the whole time and I was so nervous. And I remember stepping off the stage thinking, I just gave a speech about mental strength and my anxiety was so high. <laughs> 
Mm. And my voice cracked and I sounded anything but mentally strong. So I remember thinking like, gosh, I hope nobody watches this. And then I, here we are 21 million views later. And I had to then remind myself, well, no, it's not getting up there and crushing it. Cause you feel hundred percent confident. I was scared to death and I got through it anyway. Perhaps that's the real mental strength that it took me that day to get through that. That's so funny that you say that because I didn't notice your voice cracking at all. Really? And, I, and I didn't pick up on you being having anxiety. So I'm actually shocked that you, that you said that. So was there anything that you were telling us? I know when you're giving a speech, I've given speeches before and you're kind of like your mind is on the words and, um, you know, you're paying attention to like, okay, am I getting my story right? Um, Were you focused on that anxiety or did you even have like a split second to like talk to yourself during it? Or were you just focused on um, just relaying your message? Yeah. So I was a really shy kid who never spoke, like never raised my hand in class. Nothing. Same. High school. I had like 12 people in my class that I'd grown up with. And my high school English teacher would read my paper for me because she knew I was too shy to read anything in front of the class. And so for the, most of my life, like speaking in front of an audience would have been my biggest fear. But when my husband passed away, I gave the eulogy at his funeral. And that was the first time in my life I thought, I don't care if I sound stupid or if I mess up or I my words get all jumbled. It's not about that. I had a couple stories about him that I wanted the audience to hear. And that's all I cared about that day. And like that flipped the switch in my brain. So now if I give a speech, I don't care if I mess up and I'm going to fumble my words or I forget what I'm going to say. But I think maybe I have something valuable that I can give to the audience. And if I can make that happen, even if it's not perfect, that's the difference. So instead of being self-conscious about how I look, I try to now think more about the audience and how to make sure that they're getting something that's useful to them. And that's made a huge difference in my life in doing it. And so that day that I was giving that speech, I was like, okay, let's see how the audience is doing. But then I couldn't see them. So right. <laughs> mildly panicked about like, you know, is anybody listening or not? And, and then I of course was worried about like, what if I forget and you have this strict time limit when you give a TEDx talk. So you want to make sure you get through it in your time limit, but you also don't want to forget anything. And um, just to make sure that you, all of those things, I guess, are running through my head as I'm like, okay, let's see how this goes. Right. When you get off the stage, did you cry or anything? I didn't. And I just remember, I, again, just felt kind of like, oh, I'm not sure that that was uh, the the best job I could have done because I was so nervous. Um and then it was just kind of a whirlwind after that. There was like all the other speakers kind of, you know, were there and some audience people would come up and say hi. And it was the first event they had ever done in Ocala, um, Florida. So it was, um, you know, filled with eager audience. People who were just excited to be at a TEDx event and everybody was very kind and nice. So that was good. <laughs> mm, yeah, I bet. So, so cool. So do you have any routines or things you do to help you stay mentally strong? Yeah. So, you know, a big proponent of gratitude and how gratitude can change our lives. I think sometimes though people then feel bad, like if they have a lot going for them, but they still struggle with depression, I'll hear people say, well, I should be grateful. It's not really like, it's not the same thing. And you, you can still be grateful and have depression. And there are plenty of things in life you don't have to be grateful for. But I think sometimes for me, it's just about pausing and saying, you know, hey, I get to do these cool things or I um, have this awesome thing going on or the sun is shining, whatever it is. So I right. do try to practice gratitude as much as I can. And it does flip the switch in my life. So I don't end up complaining um, 
too much. And the other thing I do is, uh, and I don't know why I do this. People ask me all the time, but um, I love to run ever since I was a kid, but I don't like to run far. I just like to run fast. And so there's videos of me when I'd be like five years old and I'd run around the house outside and have my mom time me. Well, then I find myself at like, you know, the age of 40, I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start running a timed mile every day. (laughs) And um, when I was 12, I think I could run a mile in like seven minutes and 10 seconds. So my goal was to beat that. It was like, oh, if I could just beat a 710. And so then I did. And then I was like, oh, what if I could beat 645 and 630 and 615? And so this is what I do for fun every day. But um, I find- You try to beat yourself every time? Right. And so- um, I know. Right. And and (laughs) talk about not expecting immediate results. I did this like six pack abs in 30 days a couple of years ago and and it happened in 30 days. That happened really fast. I have been trying to run like a six minute mile for, I don't know, years and it just hasn't happened. And so, but I still like find great joy in it. And, you know, you get to the three quarter mile mark, my brain will be like, Oh, not today. You have to give up. Or if you're not going to beat yesterday's record, there's no sense in trying. So it's this opportunity to work through all of these mental strength things about the way I think, the way I feel, my actions that I take and, you know, trying to keep it in under wraps. Cause my biggest problem is I start out running so fast that I can't keep it going. So then I have to pace myself. So all of these life lessons that I have to practice and I get it done and over with in like six and a half minutes. And then I just kind of jog home. Mm. So that's one of the things I do. Yeah. Like, be like I take a cold shower and force myself to stand there yeah, if that's the thing. All the more power to you. Um, I don't do that, and I have no plan <laughs> doing that. But uh, but I find running a mile is a great way to to just give me a, a safe opportunity to practice. Like I don't think we all need to torture ourselves with problems in life. Life is tough enough, and there are plenty of opportunities to practice building mental strength. But for me, I guess this is just a really running is a really tangible way to put all those things in motion. Do you lift? I do. Yep. Okay. Do you like CrossFit or anything? I don't. So because I did this um, six pack ab things, 30, 30 days to six pack abs years ago um, in the process, I built a lot of muscle and I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. I can like pick up way heavier stuff. And so what um, is this six packs in 30 days? Because I know like people are listening, like, what the hell? How did she do that? (laughs) I I had heard about there's actually a TEDx talk. out there about somebody who did it. And I was at this somebody's birthday party and, and this person showed up and I was like, I saw your TEDx talk about him getting six pack abs in 30 days. Tell me about this. And so he told me about his trainer and he's got a trainer who's known for like getting celebrities in shape really fast when they have like a movie part or something. So I called the trainer and said, uh, what do you think? And I said, but I don't live in New York city. And I was in Maine at the time. And I said, I'm in Maine for the summer, but if you just tell me what to do. I'll just give it a shot and see if you can. Um, so for 30 days, I kind of switched my diet up and had some dumbbells in my bedroom and said, let's make it happen. And, um, by golly, we got some good results. So (laughs) can you give us like some specific things that you did? Yeah. So, uh, one thing was just adding a lot more protein to my diet. I have phases where I didn't really eat a lot of meat and that was one of them. So, but I wasn't opposed to it. So it was about adding a lot more protein. That was really the big thing with my diet. And then, um, I ran sprints instead of running, you know, even a mile, it was just about running for like 20 to 30 seconds at a time and doing that. Um, There was a phase where we did that for like 16 times a day. Um, Like interval type work. Right. Right. And then um, 
at first it was uh there's a like a video workout that's like 30 minutes and it's mostly like just building muscle with your arms instead of dumbbells and then um by like the second or third week is when we just started working on abs and it was um with weights i said i don't want just like like a flat stomach i want to have sila can you really get like you know women get really big ab muscles let's see and he's like okay amy let's see how this goes <laughs> and so it was about like you know like the crunches with with heavy weights kind of a deal and um yeah, by 30 days, I was all, holy guacamole, like this actually worked. And we had taken a before picture, which I was mortified. Like I I'm, I'd never like, you know, stood in a studio and publicly with a sports bra on. Like that was just not me at all. But he's like, you're going to want a before picture. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. And then we took after pictures. And then since then, like it ended up on like Good Day New York. And it's been all over the place too, because people are like, did you really do this in 30 days? Or people you know, think it was uh, photoshopped, which is the best compliment ever. So um, I was glad that we did that. And then it led to opportunities where I got to make like courses on how to develop six pack abs. And I thought I was a chubby kid. This is not what I would have dreamed I would ever be doing in life. At oh my God. 40. <laughs> Everybody's going to be Googling this. I will not, not. <laughs> so interesting. Um, so, okay. So you wrote now you're on what's this latest book mentally so a, a workbook that comes out in february and it'll be the 13 things mentally strong people don't do workbook mm. so it's kind of like the updated version of um, the exercises and strategies and really like a hands-on of like okay if, if you do this thing here are the top exercises that can help Ooh, do you ever go through like writer's block i don't and like i've been writing articles for so many years but I don't know. There's so much, so many studies that come out and so many things that go on. I just get excited. And then I do interviews and where I get to talk about stuff and I get to hear people tell me what they're struggling with. And um, I just get excited to keep writing. Mm, so good. Where can people find you? So my website is amymorinlcsw.com. And I'm also the host of the Very Well Mind podcast and the editor-in-chief of Very Well Mind, which now has the distinction of being the biggest mental health website in the world. So verywellmind.com is our website over there. That is, that is huge. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Yes, of course. And then if you want any of her books, uh, go on Amazon, I assume. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you guys. If you love this episode, please make sure you screenshot it, share it, tag us, all the things. We appreciate it so much. And remember, you got this. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you love this episode, make sure you are subscribed so you know when more episodes come available. My goal is to inspire others to become their vision. And one way to get the word out is with reviews. I would really appreciate it if you left an honest review on iTunes and it would mean so much to me. Thanks again and remember to go after the life you want. Bye guys. Bye.